Since the 17th century, many have come to the fog-shrouded seaside town of Collinsport, and many have never left, though perhaps not by choice. To this very day, there are those who refuse even to gaze at the house on the hill, for they have heard the legends. They know all of the tales, and they fear the night and the terror at Collinwood. Welcome to Terror at Collinwood. I am your hostess, Penny Dreadful, a.k.a. Danielle, and I welcome you to the fan podcast that celebrates dark shadows. Before we get started today, I just want to thank all of the subscribers. The podcast is really picking up subscribers, and that's really exciting. Please do subscribe if you haven't already through your favorite podcast apps. Many people use Apple Podcasts, but there is also Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Prime, Google Podcasts, Podbean. There are many different options for subscribing, so please do so. And I especially want to thank those who've taken the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast apps. That really means a lot to me. I really appreciate that. Please consider doing so if you haven't already. Just typing up a quick one-sentence review or rating uh, really does help the show to reach more people. Also, I'm really happy to see that the YouTube subscription numbers are creeping up there. So please subscribe to the YouTube channel. Even if you subscribe to uh, one of the podcast feeds through the apps, uh, I do post exclusive content over on the YouTube channel. And once I reach a thousand YouTube subscribers, it'll unlock some really cool videos. I have some bonus videos for for YouTube that are not podcast episodes, but just additional fun things that I will post once we hit a thousand subscribers. The purpose of this podcast is to celebrate and promote Dark Shadows and really just have fun and talk about Dark Shadows and really explore the characters and the mythology of the show and look at some behind the scenes stuff here and there. So thank you to everybody who's subscribed and commented. Uh, I really appreciate all the YouTube comments as well as the comments on social media like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And I really appreciate all the shares I'm seeing uh, on people's pages and in Dark Shadows groups and horror groups. It's really cool. Thank you. Um, Lastly, be sure to visit terroratcollinwood.com and then head on over to the blog section. There's a section on the site that says blog. Click on that. There's some really amazing stuff on there including Eric Marshall's Dark Shadows cartoon designs, uh, Dark Shadows as a 70s Hanna-Barbera cartoon, uh, along the lines of what Filmation did with Star Trek. This is the, if Dan Curtis had pitched Dark Shadows as a cartoon from the 70s, uh, this is what it would have looked like potentially. So uh, check out the character model sheets in one of the articles. And then there's also another great article, thanks to Rob Sacconi, whose uncle was a cameraman on Dark Shadows. He provided some really rare behind the scenes Dark Shadows photos and interviewed his uncle. He conveyed my questions to him and there's an interview on there. And there's more stuff coming soon. I have some things in the works that are coming. So uh, some really cool articles with photos and and fun stuff. So keep an eye on the blog. Stay tuned for what's coming up. (laughs) 
This Just In. A little update on Our Shadowed Past, the marvelous book conceived by Bob Issel. And Bob posted in uh, many of the Dark Shadows groups uh, a bit of an update for those who may want to get the book and may have missed out. He says, I'm back with a public update on Our Shadowed Past. The book has been printed and while supplies last, is now available for sale to the public directly from myself. Copies of the book are priced at just $27 plus postage. I couldn't be happier with the way the book has turned out. Many thanks to Stephen Mark Rainey and Jeff Kenny for their help in making the book as beautiful as it turned out. For information in obtaining copies of the book, please email me at bobubus, B-O-B-U-B-A-S, 59 at gmail.com. Again, it's bobubus59 at gmail.com. Definitely, you don't want to miss out on this book, folks. It is sensational. It is a beautiful, beautiful book and a touching tribute to the fans of Dark Shadows. So drop Bob a line and hopefully he still has them. And now, without further ado, on with the show. I have a very exciting guest with me today. Uh, he has written many articles and has interviewed many of the Dark Shadows actors. And he's here today with me to talk about characters from Dark Shadows and about his own background with Dark Shadows and how he got into it. As a kid, he was the president of the Dennis Patrick fan club, which I love. That is wonderful. Uh, from 1986 through 2014, New England-based writer Rod Labby regularly contributed to Fangoria magazine. His other magazine credits include Famous Monsters of Filmland, Film Facts, Scary Monsters, Gore Zone, Retro Fan Magazine, and The Fantastic 50s. Rods received 12 prestigious Rondo Hatton Award nominations for his work profiling the stars of Dark Shadows and for other horror topics. And in 2019, he won the Rondo Award for Best Interview with Catherine Lee Scott. Please welcome my guest, fellow New Englander, Rod Labby. Hello, Rod. Hi, thank you very much, Danielle, or Penny Dreadful. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to be here. It's great having you here and on your birthday, no less. Happy birthday. Oh, yes. Yes. Today is my birthday. Uh, I'm not going to say how old I am, but they can do the math. And if they know that I was an original Dark Shadows fan, well, I'm older, older than 50. <laughs> 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 but not as old as Barnabas. So there you go. Oh, not as old as that. No, and I can go out in the sun. <laughs> well, thank you for spending your birthday with me this evening uh, to talk about dark shadows. So oh, I love just, it. Yay! Let's just dive right into it. So you you live in Maine. So I find that as a as a dark shadows fan, growing up in New England, I'm based in Massachusetts. There was a special like layer to it that was exciting about being in the Northeast here in New England, in the area where the show was set. Uh, did you find that to be the case as well for you, especially being in Maine uh, growing up? Well, I, I never thought of Maine as being particularly spooky, uh, <laughs> not until Dark Shadows, actually. Um, but I did and still do enjoy the ambiance here of the scenery, especially during autumn, which is a typical, you know, kind of autumny situation where you see foliage everywhere, gnarled trees and big fields and uh, hay bales in the fields. And there are vegetable stands and corn shocks and the whole deal. The smell of uh, burning, burning leaves. Burning. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's what I remember as a kid. This was before I was involved in Dark Shadows. I mean, we used to 
we lived in a house that had a huge backyard that bordered the woods. And my father used to go out there at night and rake leaves and burn them. Mm-hmm. We'd have the trusty hose with us. And my sister and I would go out and so- so-called help him. But we really just wanted to see things burn. That was <laughs> And we'd come in and we'd be smelling the smoke. And it was that great, like you said, that great smoke from burning leaves. Yeah. So it- as a monster kid, I was always raised on uh, horror right from the start with a, a sister, an older sister who was, I guess, a guide through down that pathway. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, but it was, but I never thought of Maine as being particularly anything scary until Dark Shadows. Mm-hmm. And of course, then my connection to that, once I got into fandom, I was always treated like like I was one of the Collinses myself. And I very rarely <laughs> saw anything like the Seaview Manor or anything like that in uh, in Maine. Although there are mansions in Maine, you know, and there is a rocky coast just like we see on the show. Sure, yeah. Oh, I'm up in Bar Harbor, you know, oh, yeah. looking at that ocean. It's just like, wow, this this is it. Yeah. Um, now, you mentioned being a monster kid growing up. Were you oh, yeah. in, Were you into the monster uh, movies uh, before getting into Dark Shadows? Was the, the, that all kind of dovetailed together or was Dark Shadows your gateway into that? Because I read your article about the Aurora monster models uh, in the new Retro Fan magazine where you interviewed Lara Parker <laughs> as well, which was wonderful. Right. Uh, yeah, both of those articles are or it's issue 17 for, for those who want to find it. Um, so please talk about that. How did you get into the whole monster thing and Dark Shadows? Well, I, I had an affinity for Halloween. And the first Halloween, I remember I was uh, four and three quarters years old because my birthday is November 2nd. Mm-hmm. So I was almost five. And that particular year, even though I had prepped to go out and my older sister, who was five and a half years older than me, Suzanne, was going to bring me, I ended up coming down with a cold. So my mother wouldn't let me go out. But that particular Halloween, I got to watch, and this is really what started the whole thing about being a monster kid, was Walt Disney's uh, The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. Oh. Ichabod Crane. And, and it was only the Ichabod Crane one that I saw on TV. Now, this was a black and white TV. I was raised on television. And I'm not ashamed to say it. And this particular cartoon, which is beautifully animated, by the way, even yes. by today's standards, scared the whatever out of me, the stuffing out of me, because the um, Headless Horseman is very scary and he still is very scary. Yeah. And so that started me with this thing about Halloween, what's associated with Halloween, the spooky things, the, the foliage I always saw as associated with it, the, the change in the actual balminess of the air. You go from the heat of summer to suddenly you're wearing a sweater at night, you're raking leaves and you're doing carving pumpkins and all that stuff, putting up Halloween decorations. But then right after my, uh, I was five, five and a half, I would say, for some strange reason, and I still don't know why this happened. My older sister, who again was like, she must've been 10, 10 or 11 at this point, she brought me to see a horror film. And my parents said it was okay. We went to see a movie called From Hell It Came, which was about an, an ambulatory monster tree that grew up out of the ground and went chasing, <laughs> I'll call it chasing, that walked very slowly. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the victims had to sunk, stop or faint yeah, so they yeah. could be captured by this monster. But uh, I didn't see it as scary. I was fascinated by it. So she became my movie-going companion. And every weekend in those days, we're talking about 58, 59, somewhere around there, 1958, 59, there were horror films and double bills every weekend. You know, if it wasn't the giant spider, then it was Attack of the of the Killer Shrews 
or Attack of the Giant Leeches. That yes. one I remember in particular, seeing that at the movies. Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, I saw that at the movies. And so she brought me all the time. I never once had a nightmare, never. But I became a horror fan because of her. And then, of course, TV started, you know, I would track down these locally produced television shows that were really a movie hour or whatever with a host. And I would watch these things where I would see movies that were released before I was born or early on in my life when I was too young to even know that I was at a movie theater. Did you did you watch Uncle Gory, Eddie Driscoll's uh, oh, character? Oh, my God. I'm so glad that you brought that up. I remember <laughs> you, you made a mention of that on the classic horror film board years ago. Mm -hmm. Eddie Driscoll was my hero. Oh, awesome. Hero. <laughs> I oh love my it. God, I, I saw him before Uncle Gory. Uncle Gory is the one that I remember the most. Mm -hmm. uh, almost fondly. But pr prior to that, he was in a show that started in the fall of 62 and it was called Shock Theater and he played a character called Moldy. Oh. Like Moldy Bread. Mm -hmm. That went on for a little while. Then it changed to Weird. Yeah. And and Weird, he was a, uh, a Martian, a three-eyed Martian <laughs> called Crandall yeah. who had a gun that he called a Scrooge gun. And um, then he went away for a while and then all of a sudden he came back as Uncle Gory, which was, what was Uncle Gory anyway? Like like a caveman? Caveman. He looked like a caveman to me. <laughs> he did look like a caveman, but he had like a, a dungeon with a skeleton, you know, shackled to the wall. And he had this big book of stories to read. I was addicted to this. this. That was the summer of 65. I remember that. And through him, I saw all the original universal classics like Dracula, Frankenstein. I'd never seen any of those before. Oh, wow. And not long after that, in the fall of 65, when I was about to enter the seventh grade, I started buying Famous Monsters of Filmland, and that, that sealed the deal right there. Yeah. And through these, uh, you know, watching these Universal monster films yeah. and developing this love for for classic monsters, like how did Dark Shadows fall into this? How did you discover Dark Shadows? Well, of course, that was 66 was mm -hmm. when Dark Shadows premiered. And I had two cousins. I still have them now. And uh, mm -hmm. they were big into soap operas. And mm -hmm. one day I was in the, what year was, that was in the summer of 66. So I was probably about 13 years old. And in August of 66, my cousin called me up and said, you have to watch this soap opera on, on TV called Dark Shadows. And I said, why? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a scary story. It's about a, a young, you know, they started giving me the Victoria Winters background because, of course, there was no vampire at this point. And um, I said, OK, I'll, I'll watch it. So the next day I watched maybe 15 minutes of it and I go, oh, this is awful. This is in black and white. It's a it's it's just a tedious, you know, soap opera that appeals to old ladies and grandmothers and housewives and and silly cousins like my my cousins. And um, but then a couple of months went by. That was in August of 66. Now we're talking about April of 67. I was home. I was in the eighth grade now and I was actually channel surfing. And in those days, you didn't do that with a remote. You got up and you turned the channel with your hand. Okay. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, I had I, one of those too. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I came to channel eight, which is out of Poland Spring, Maine. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was a scene where a man was standing in front of a portrait and there was a heartbeat on the soundtrack and the portrait's eyes began to glow. Mm -hmm. And I went, that turned out to be Willie Loomis and the Barnabas portrait. And I was like, 
what is this? What is this? Now, did you realize it was the same show that you had no. tried to watch earlier? Okay. No, I didn't. I didn't. Uh, <laughs> so I, I watched the rest of it. It was toward the end of the episode, actually. It was like the tail end of it. Mm-hmm. And so I watched it the next day. And then I started communing with my cousins more. And we talk, you know, we'd watch it. And then we'd call each other up. and We'd talk about it, dissect it. What was so scary about it? And at that point, Barnabas had just been introduced. And so I remember the Maggie as kidnap victim storyline the best where it built up to, um, oh, it built up to so much. I mean, it was just awesome. I thought I loved Catherine Lee Scott. I thought she made the best freaked out heroine ever, victim ever. And I loved everything about it. I I mean, I didn't notice the, the flubs. I didn't notice any of this. What I noticed was an atmosphere an ambiance. And that was what was important. And I believed all of these people, no matter how ridiculous the concept of their characterization was, I believed them all. The stuffy Roger, you know, the, the young <laughs> governess who didn't know, couldn't understand anything, the little bratty boy, uh, Elizabeth Collins Stoddard, who was, you know, I was told that she was an old movie star. That's what my parents told me. It was like, wow, you know, this is, who is she? You know, started tracking her down. And in the meantime, I was still at you know, going to see horror movies on a regular basis, the American International Poe movies with Vincent Price. and Great stuff, yeah. Sure, and the Hammer films and stuff. So I I was a a horror, the thrills of Dark Shadows were tame compared to that. But I think it was the overall story that was very compelling. Now, from watching Dark Shadows, subsequently you got involved in fandom. Uh, You were one of the people who actually started a fan club for one of the actors, which uh, if fandom at that time seems to be much more focused on um, fan clubs for the actors. And then when it went into the 70s, then it became a more sort of, you know, fanzines like World of Dark Shadows and the Shadowgram and and all of this. Now, how did you become the president of the Dennis Patrick fan club? Like how did this develop? That's kind of an interesting story. Um, Mm -hmm. My sister, younger sister, I have two sisters, an older and a younger one. And the younger one, who was probably about eight years old at at this time, uh, around 1968, decided that she was going to write fan letters to the stars of Dark Shadows. And I, I was not into that. I eventually did get into it, but at that time I was not. And she started getting answers. And uh, some of them were personal, you know, like from Catherine Lee Scott, uh, uh, an actual handwritten letter, which she kept for years. But there were other ones that were not so personal. And there was a lot of uh, stuff that was uh, filler that was thrown into the envelope, you know, by this, by that, whatever. But one of them had a list of fan clubs. Mm-hmm. So the membership for these fan clubs were things like 50 cents, a dollar. If it was a dollar 50, it was considered exorbitant. You know, of course, I had no income, so I had to beg the money off my parents during that time. And we decided, she and I, that we would join some of these fan clubs because it listed what you would get. And, and I was attracted by the idea of getting an autographed picture, you know, mm-hmm. and that was part of the package. So I joined at the time Marie Wallace's who had just come on Dark Shadows as Eve, the the mate of Adam, who was played by Robert Rogan. Yeah. Uh, Robert Tremus. I, I also interviewed him for scary yeah, yeah. He was very interesting. And uh and then we joined a we ended up I ended up joining Diana Malay, who played Laura Collins. Robert Finocchio ran her club. He was in St. Louis. And then there was Dee Kearney who who uh started Lewis Edmonds fan club. Club. Mm-hmm. Then there was Gloria Lillybridge who just passed away and she she handled Jerry Lacey's fan club. Mm-hmm. And then there was one other one. What was the other one? I can't even remember. 
Oh, Marie Wallace. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. Of course. How can I forget about Marie? So I started, you know, this was a connection I didn't have before. So I started corresponding with these fan club presidents and some of them would send me voluminous letters. This was before emails. <laughs> I get this envelope that was just stuffed with handwritten. Can you imagine writing all yeah. that? I mean, that was amazing <laughs> to me. And then it was amazing. Of course, the attraction was I lived in Maine. Mm-hmm. Okay. They lived in places like St. Louis or Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, or the Bronx, Brooklyn, mm-hmm. or whatever. They didn't live in a, a mysterious place like Maine, which got even more mysterious when Stephen King started doing his thing. And uh, <laughs> so in the course of our correspondence, I've, I would, of course, ask them how they became fan club presidents. And then once they told me, which was basically just tracking the star down, whether they go to the studio and meet them there or do it some via some other method and asking permission to do this. Okay, Mm -hmm. so I thought, well, I can do that, too, but I'm in the wilds of Maine. I don't know how to go about doing it. And in those days, a long distance phone call cost money. You know, it was it it cost money to make a long distance call. So Mm -hmm. um, I was also watching Dark Shadows and it seemed no sooner that somebody came on there who was new that they would be snatched up as a fan for a fan club, like literally within days. So I'm watching the Leviathan storyline and Dennis Patrick comes on. Now, Dennis Patrick had been on Dark Shadows about two years earlier as has conniver Jason McGuire, yeah. who was blackmailing the Joan Bennett character and also was dispatched by Barnabas. OK, he was mm-hmm. in the way, but he came back and I thought, hmm, well, he was on the show before and he doesn't have a fan club and I'll see if I can do it. So I. I just called the Manhattan Directory Assistants, believe it or not, and they had him listed. So I got his number and I <laughs> cold called him. And I was nervous as anything. You, you can only imagine how, how shaky I was and everything. <laughs> I introduced myself. I said, I came from Maine. I would very much like to run a fan club for him, if that's at all possible. And then there was like deathly silence. And then he said, sure, mm-hmm. if you want to do that. Uh, what year are you in school? And I said, well, I'm a junior. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, I want to make sure you do all your homework and get all that stuff done. He was very conscious. Oh, I love that. That's great. Yeah, do your homework, <laughs> make sure you get all your school responsibilities under under control. And I would be glad to have you run my fan club. Oh, and he was that's a, great. <laughs> he was very accommodating. He sounded just like he did on, on the TV. <laughs> very accommodating man sent me a stack of eight by tens that if I had them now, they'd be worth their weight in gold, maybe. And uh, um, always was there to answer my questions, how, no matter how silly they were. And then I launched my fan club. Did you did you do newsletters? I did newsletters that I wrote completely. Uh, mm-hmm. Sometimes I'd have like contributions from other people, but mostly it was like 75 to 80 percent me. Uh, I did that for a year, but then he left the show again. Yeah. And this time it was the show was building up to something. Eventually it was cancellation, but I didn't realize that then because the movie was coming out, the House Mm -hmm. of Dark Shadows movie. And I interviewed him during that time Mm -hmm. because he plays an important part. He plays a sheriff in that movie. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we talked about things like Lost in Space because he was on Lost in Space and and, uh, and Perry Mason and all that stuff. So I would I would say I was in business for about a year and a half and then I just disbanded it. By then, the the interest was gone. It wasn't like the other clubs, but even the other clubs started to disband. And by the time it got to the actual cancellation in April of 71, I don't think there were any left. I think oh. they were all done. Oh, that's too bad. Even even Jonathan's? Well, I don't know. Uh, Jonathan was like the 
untouchable. I mean, he was like the ultimate, you know, like mm-hmm. the Dalai Lama. I mean, you just, <laughs> you just, uh, whoever got a hold of him for a fan club, you know, got the brass ring. Right. But uh, I don't know what happened. I, I do know that, and this is going to sound terrible, but I guess I was also ready to move on. I was a senior in high school. I was sure. just about to graduate. And Dark Shadows was something of my past. And I, I used to go through these weird periods where I'd actually want to be mature and grown up. <laughs> you know, I, I put put all this behind you, Rodney. You're not a child anymore. Get rid of your monster models. Get rid of your monster magazines. And I did. I actually got rid of them. And when I say got rid of them, I mean, I threw them out. Isn't that terrible? <laughs> I threw them out. You threw away your Aurora model kits? Oh, no. I broke, I broke them first. And then I moved. Oh, <laughs> no. Oh, that just broke my heart, too. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Isn't that crazy? And uh-huh. I even did that to some of my autographed pictures. Uh, quite a few, actually. <gasps> oh, really? I mean, wow. I was, I did keep maybe about 20, but no Dark Shadows ones. No Dark Shadows ones. Uh, And so that was out of my life, or so I thought, but it came back. It came back into my life. But I've never been involved in, that was my only time being involved in fandom, so to speak. I mean, I I do know a lot of the people, but I'm not part of that circle where they all go in front of Seaview and take a big class picture. I've never done that stuff. I just did, I did, I was there uh, a week ago and I will tell you it's, it is amazing. It's well worth, well oh, worth I the drive imagine. down. Yeah. From Maine. Cause I think, I think you really enjoy it. Um, but um, the, uh, the just quick question, because I, there's something else I want to bring up that, that you brought sure. to mind. When you, when you put together your newsletter for the Dennis Patrick fan club, were all the articles you wrote in the newsletter about Dennis Patrick specifically, or did you have other things about dark shadows in the mix or was it all Dennis Patrick, what he was doing next or what he was up to in his career? Or? Well, there was this, I, I would say it was Dark Shadow centric. I did start out with stuff about about Dennis, but uh, usually I'd go off and segue into something else that was had to do with Dark Shadows. I would say that these, for the most part, were professionally done. I'm talking about everybody, not just me, but the other people who did uh, fan clubs. Gloria had the best. I mean, she was right up there, uh, mm-hmm. professionally speaking. But um, everybody else, it was kind of like, um, I don't want to say amateurish, but that was its charm. That was mm-hmm. the charm of it, is that it wasn't uber professional. It was approachable. Yeah. And and so it would start out, and this is going to sound funny, but remember, this is the vernacular of the day. I'd say like, hi, all you groovy cats. Yeah. How's it, you know, how's it hanging? What are you, what are your wishes for 1970, an end to the Vietnam war? You know, I mean, it would be stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, that's great. And we do all that stuff. And so, uh, and there would be quizzes and there'd be puzzles and there'd be like little uh, contests. And sometimes I would, I'd say now chapter one of a new dark shadow story that I wrote. You know, uh-huh. and, and I, I type it in. So you wrote fanfic for it? I wrote a little bit of it. I never went anywhere with it. By the mm-hmm. time I was getting involved in it, it was pretty much toward the end. Okay. And okay. and uh, But I, I never got back in touch with him, but I was able through a contact to get... I should also say that in between all this, right before I, I'm, I got together with Dennis, I read in the newsletter from the Marie Wallace fan club that she was appearing at a local theater in New Hampshire called Hampton Playhouse, which was yes. a historical place. Mm-hmm. And I begged my parents to bring us. I didn't have a license. So I begged my parents to bring my sister and I down there, younger sister. They did. We went down there and we made a night of it and, and rented a hotel room. 
And that night when we went, I left a note with the stage manager that I, to Marie. I'd never met her before. She didn't know me from home the ground, but I said, uh, we traveled 150 miles one way to see you. Could we come backstage after the show? Well, I gave it to him. He said he'd give it to her. After the show, I tracked him down. He said, right this way. And he's oh, like, loses right in back and, and uh, past all these backdrops and, and everything. And then he brings us in and there she is with a shining light standing, uh, shining on her. That's what it looked like. <laughs> a, a gentleman beside her who turned out to be her husband. And uh, she was, uh, she had just come from the show. So she was still dressed in the outfit and it was called burlesque. That was the name of the show. So she was a show girl. <laughs> she was as nice as any, she's the nicest celebrity I've ever met in my life. She was Everything just, I hear, she is just so sweet. I hear oh, that from everybody. Wonderful. Yeah. She was wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Put us at ease answered our silly questions. I actually asked the question, can you hear the music when you're on, when you're acting in the show? She goes, no, that's put in later. As if I didn't know that, but I felt dumb. But then she said, um, she introduced her husband who passed away about a year later, actually. And yeah. he was very, very nice. And then we introduced our mother because she's the one who was there and, and took some pictures. And I was beside myself. I couldn't believe I was meeting a Dark Shadow star. I could not believe it. I was thrilled. And then uh, that was in July of 69. And in November of 69, when I had just started the Dennis uh, Patrick fan club, my best friend, who was also a Dark Shadows fan, we were in school and he said, I read something about you in a magazine. I go, what? He <laughs> said, yeah, I read, I read about you. You're, you and your sister going to see Murray Wallace in a magazine called Afternoon TV which was published then. Yeah. So I went and bought it and we were in the gossip column. We said they, oh, that we, that's great. two of her fans had come to the, she, she, she put that in. That's great. And, she mentioned you again recently in uh, Bob Issel's book, Our Shadowed Past. Uh, oh, did she? What she have to say? She, she talked about you coming to see her at the theater in New Hampshire. She, oh, ben she mentioned I, the exact yeah. story you just told. Yes, Isn't she did. Isn't yeah. that funny? Isn't yeah. that funny? <laughs> you know, the, the, that leads to another thing, uh, aspect of it, is that uh, years later, 30 years later, now it's 1999, I connected with her again through uh, D, D uh, Kearney actually got me her address mm -hmm. and I wrote to her and she said, I remember you. And I remember when you and your sister came backstage. I don't know how she remembered that, but she did. <laughs> I've worked with her many times since then. Yeah. Um, I want to get to that uh, interviewing the dark shadow stars, but there's one other thing I want to bring up because you mentioned uh, about how your sister was sort of your guide into yes. uh, horror, uh, classic horror and dark shadows and all, all of that. And um, I had a similar experience with my uh, my uncle, my uncle Valdemar. Uh, I, love uncle. I know, right? He loves it. He always likes to point out that it's uh, Edgar Allan Poe has a story, the case of M. Valdemar, you know, <laughs> I know, I know, I know, I know. We call him Uncle Val, but he was uh, a monster kid in the 60s and he discovered dark shadows when it was on, uh, on the air. And when I was a kid, I was a monster kid in the seventies because of him. He introduced me to all that stuff. And, and it was the monster craze. I think it, I say, I would say went through the seventies and kind of waned toward the end of the seventies and going into like 1980. Um, but that second wave of, of the monster craze, but he introduced me to dark shadows, gave me all his famous monsters of Filmland magazines and his uh, comic books. And oh. he'd always tell me stories about Barnabas and the Collins family. And he eventually got, 
the tapes for Dark Shadows. Uh, they were bootleg tapes for fourth generation in the early 80s from syndication. And the first episode I watched was that the one where Willie releases Barnabas from the coffin. Uh, I was really hooked. And I I had already, it was like the, these legends that have, had been built up through the 70s by my uncle as he's telling me these stories. And then finally I get to see them manifest on the screen in grainy black and white. And it was, it was magnificent. And he showed me all of those universal horror films he would get the tapes as well you know for the universal monster movies hammer films the corman aip vincent price films all of that stuff we would sit down and watch it and i know you're also a member of the classic horror film board how do you feel dark shadows sort of fits into the the scheme uh because i've encountered some horror fans where you as soon as they hear that Dark Shadows was a soap opera, they have a very similar reaction to what you had when you, mm-hmm. your cousins tried to get you to watch it, you know? Right. Uh, and, and conversely, I've seen some people who kind of reject, they dance around the idea of using the word horror, or I, I think it's more of a terror show. It's not really, a, to use Boris Karloff's, you know, distinction or Anne Radcliffe's distinction, terror versus, it's really terror, not horror, but it really, there are moments of horror. But how does Dark Shadows fit into that whole uh, scheme for you? Is there is Dark Shadows an important part of horror history? Let me ask you that. Well, well I, I think the most important uh, contribution it's made to horror history is the fact that it introduced the tragic vampire who doesn't want mm-hmm. to be a vampire. Mm-hmm. And up until then, I mean, Dracula was always presented as a monster. If you think about like the Bela Lugosi Dracula, he was a suave kind of European dude. You know, and then you had the Christopher Lee character who was much more forceful and aggressive, but there was no humanity to them mm-hmm. at all. You know, they they knew what they were and they were perfectly satisfied with being that way. And they used people as victims. That's all that they did. Mm-hmm. But when Barnabas came along, and of course, this has been laid right at the doorstep of Jonathan Frid, suddenly there was a, a vampire who was forced to do these things against his will because, well, he, he was compelled. He was compelled to do them. He didn't want to bite people. He didn't want to kill them, but he had to because something came over him, almost like a drug addiction or or whatever. He couldn't fight it. And so after it was done, after the act was done, he'd be immersed in guilt. And that's usually when he would say to like Ben, who was played by Thayer David, destroy me, or he'd tell his father to destroy, you know, which of course would... um, then create another situation when they, where his loved ones would have to do this to him and they didn't want to do this, sure. you know, but, but he, they, he, he couldn't live the way that he was. That's why, well, we'll talk about 1795 later, but that's what the, you know, what happened to him in 1795, how he ended up in the coffin. Sure. And, uh, uh, but I would say that that was the greatest contribution and, and is still being felt today because I don't think there has ever been a vampire Outside of maybe the vampire in Fright Night, Jerry, I forget what his last name was. Uh, Dandridge. Yeah. Yes. Oh, very good. Very Dandridge. He, although he had, you know, he was in love with Amy. I mean, that was his uh, reincarnation of his fiance or whatever. Which is dark shot comes from Barnabas. I mean. Exactly. So there's never been a, a full-fledged vampire that, I mean, you could see like groups of vampires, like in Blade, for example, mm-hmm. who just like to kill and feed off humans. But then there's always one that maybe she was your mother or maybe she was your girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever. And now they turned and you're, you must deal with it. I mean, look at Salem's Lot. Mm-hmm. Well, in Salem's Lot, there was that actual evil vampire. But the subsidiary characters in Salem's Lot who all become vampires themselves, 
Some of them you feel very sorry for because you know that's not what they want. So Barnabas was the first one to do that, and it's been lasting. And that's the that's the real, I think, uh, legacy of the show. Yeah, I'll I'll add to that. I think that that's excellent. But I will also add that I think the serialized format for genre shows, horror, fantasy, sci-fi, speculative fiction, we can lay that at the doorstep of Dark Shadows too, because oh, yes. all of these shows now, like these Netflix shows and everything, it's all a cliffhanger. You know, you got to watch the next one. It's a it's a serial. You got to watch them all in sequence to follow along with what's happening. You know, but things like you know Game of Thrones, any of that, Stranger oh, yeah. Things, all oh, yeah. of all of that stuff, kind of has that continuing storyline going on through each episode um, and Dark Shadows spearheaded that in many ways. But you know, I never really found uh, Dark Shadows to be horrifying or even terrorizing. I, I, I It struck me as more like a fantasy. A fantasy, um, like a dark fantasy. Yeah, a dark like a, yeah, like a dark fantasy. I mean, I, I, I think part of the appeal was, is for me at least, was I hate to say that because I knew it was popular, therefore I wanted to watch it. That was part of it, but it it was more than that. It was, mm-hmm. I understood what they were trying to do. And when they steered, steered away, I'm not talking about when they adhered to taking great pieces of literature and trying to shoehorn them in and make them adapted for Dark Shadows, like Turn of the Screw and things like that. When they did like 1795, the entire mm-hmm. chapter of that was sublime. Yeah. Sublime. Yeah. And what led up to it? where Barnabas had Carolyn under his spell and Julia was on the outs with Barnabas and he was haunting her with the ghost of uh, Dr. Woodard. Yeah. That was all great stuff. And even the Diana Malay episodes before Barnabas came in Mm -hmm. and she was Laura Collins, that seems to be uh, forgotten because that whole period is very important. It really is. It's it's fantastic. It was it laid the groundwork for Barnabas oh, in many yeah. ways and stands oh, yeah. on its own as well. It's such a oh, strange, yeah. strange, unique idea to do a phoenix. It uh, was like, completely. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, so let's talk about how you got into writing about Dark Shadows. Interview, you've interviewed so many of the Dark Shadows stars, you, you know, from the from David Selby to Catherine Lee Scott to Laura Parker to uh, Roger Davis. Like how how did that come about interviewing the actors? Well, I, I, I was just telling somebody I went to a writer's group tonight. I mean, this afternoon we were discussing the origins of writing. For me, I was uh, I worked when I was in college, I did stuff that was college oriented. Like I worked for, I wrote for the school newspaper. I was a jack of all trades. I edited the literary magazine. This was both both at my undergraduate and my graduate school. The graduate school was the University of Maine at Orono. And that's the uh, the, uh, stomping grounds of Stephen King. Yeah. And this was in 1980, let's say 83, I would say somewhere around there. And one day I'm walking along on the campus and who do I see walking toward me but Stephen King. And he was always on the campus and nobody made a big deal. You know, he lived in Bangor. That's not very far from from Orno. And but I was inspired by him, especially after I did research on him (laughs) when he was a student at UMO. His writings are on file or in the archives at the school library. And I went and looked at them and read some of the stuff. And these stories were different, like the stories that were in Night Shift, which was his compilation. A great, great collection of short stories, by the way. That's a great one. Well, there were several stories that were in the archives at UMO that were the same stories, but different. He, he changed them for, for Night Shift. So I, I decided I wanted to become a free a writer of fiction. But then I ended up becoming a freelancer just by chance. I sent an article into a magazine and it got 
spot. This was right before I graduated. So I said, okay, I'm going to examine this new bobble. I'm going to see what is a freelance writer. I really didn't know. And I had no, no cred and I had no connections to anybody, but I was very diligent and determined. So I would barrel forward and write to people and say, hi, my name is Rodney Labby. I was going by my full name then. And uh, I'm a freelance writer. I'd very much like to interview you for Fangoria magazine, let's say. Uh-huh. Okay. And I had no connection to Fangoria. It was all bull. The whole thing was just made up. <laughs> but I got somebody to agree to it. Okay. And he, was, he was a novelist and he had written the uh, adaptation of a movie called The Legacy, which is a horror film. And uh, we did the interview. And the interview in those days wasn't like this because there wasn't even email in those days. It was 86. Uh, I sent the, him a blank cassette and a list of questions and he just read them into the cassette and answered that way. And then I would transcribe when I came back, when he sent it back to me. And um, I sent it off to Fangoria and they bought it. And I thought, wow, I'm in, you know, Fangoria was the ultimate goal for me. That was like the top. You're starting at the top rod. You're not like starting at the bottom and moving up. You are at the top. And uh, but then again, how do you maintain that? Okay, once that article comes out, then you're just yesterday's news. As luck would have it, Stephen King started filming a movie here in Maine called Pet Cemetery. Okay, and when I found that out, I was running a store, a comic book shop. A customer came in and told me about it. That was in 88. I wrote to Fangoria, and of course, they knew me from that article I had done. When I say I wrote, it wasn't an email. It was an actual letter, you know, in the mail. And I said, I have access to the movie set, which was not true. (laughs) But I I figured if they said you have assignments, I could use that as a springboard to get in, you know, into these movie sets which is exactly what happened. So I went to the movie set and every time from that point on, every time there was a Stephen King movie uh, filmed in Maine, I was a correspondent. Oh, great. And, and in fact, I don't know if you know this, but they made a, a documentary on Pet Cemetery called Unearth and Untold, The Path to Pet Cemetery." And mm-hmm. I'm in that. I'm in oh, that. Oh, no kidding. No, I haven't seen that, but I'll have to yeah. check that out. I was actually in a cemetery. We went back to the cemetery where some of that movie was filmed. I was younger then, but uh, we talk a lot about about uh, uh, Stephen King. But anyway, how did how did it go from that to Dark Shadows? Is I was on a message board one day. It happened to be a Dark Shadows message board, which I didn't even know existed. Mm-hmm. So I wrote, "Hi, I'm an old fan. I used to run a Dark Shadows fan club for Dennis Patrick. You know, uh, very interesting site." kudos, you know, that kind of thing. And I checked back in a couple of days and there was like a message saying, do you live in Maine and do you have two sisters? And I said, yes. And it turned out to be Dee Kearney, who used to go by the name of Dorothy Money, Dot Money. That's what we called her. And so I I renewed my friendship with her after 30 years. And then she put me in touch with Robert Finocchio from the Diana Malay fan club. And we got in touch again. And uh, then they put me in touch with Marie Wallace when I contacted Marie and she remembered me, then we did an interview on the phone and uh, I sent it into a magazine called Autograph Collector because I collected autographs and that's no longer being being published, but they did one called Return to Collinwood, Collecting Dark Shadows. And it was all from me and it was all about collecting autograph pictures from Dark Shadows cast. <laughs> and then that led to another article that I wrote, including interviews with David Selby and Catherine Lee Scott, that was done for Scary Monsters. And I sent that in and it became, I got nominated for a Rondo for that. I didn't even know what a Rondo was. It's like, what? I'm nominated for what? What is that? For best article. But I should say part of that was 
I, I met David Selby in the summer of 76 at a local Summerstock Theater here in Maine, Lakewood. Lakewood's yeah. the name of it. Yeah. And uh, we went to see him. He was in a play with Betsy Palmer called Eccentricities of a Nightingale. Mm-hmm. My younger sister and I went out backstage and met him. We were the only ones there. It was just oh. us three. He looked just like he did as Quentin. That was only 76. So he had the dark hair and, the yeah. you know, signed our album. We had the record album. He signed it for us. And uh, he remembered that. Too. I don't know if they're just telling me this, but he claimed to have remembered that uh, when I got in touch with him. I've, I've always heard he's a super nice person. Oh, he's too. just a wonderful person. And yeah. uh, uh, we we did it. We ended up I've interviewed him several times and the yeah. last time was for a retro fan. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I answered your question, but yeah, no, I- no, that's great. Now, is there a, no, that's, that's fantastic. I'm just mesmerized by, by this. Um, a couple of things. Um, the university of Maine and Orono is, yeah. I, I love that play. I, um, they have a folklore department and I've, re- I've reached out to them and they sent me a bunch of material because I started putting together this. I was planning to write a book about uh, werewolf folklore in oh. new england which a lot of people don't know about we have you know of course in new england we we have you know ghost stories galore vampire scares in the 19th century of course the witches in, in salem but there were was also uh, there are also some legends about werewolves in in the acadian part of maine from what i what i found oh out. really i didn't know yeah that. yeah the acadians that came down from canada brought stories of the loop guru uh and so there were there were quite a few tales they sent me these audio recordings from uh, that were recorded with you know these mainers back in the in the 60s and 70s telling stories of you know older people about about the loop guru and uh really fascinating stuff so i ha- i've put some of that together but i i don't know if i have enough for a book but i think i might maybe i'll do a blog with it or something like that um but I, it's a great place definitely a, a, an excellent resource um is there is there someone from the dark shadows cast who you really want to and is there is there some, oh, yes. someone you really want to interview you like what's your number one want number one want yeah who's your number one want to, to definitely interview? nancy barrett nancy barrett she's yeah she's the one i want to talk to the most i've asked jim pearson jim pearson i should do a shout out for him he's been he's helped me so much in, the, in getting a hold of these people mm-hmm. uh, and, and i feel an urgency actually to get a hold of them because time is moving on especially this last year uh the things that have happened so i I feel I want to record these people for posterity's sake. And uh, she, I've never been able to to connect with her. Uh, Hopefully she's listening to this or whatever. And I would also like to interview, uh, well, Jerry Lacey. I don't know how to get in touch with him now that Gloria is gone, but he's somebody I'd like to interview again. I'd like to interview him for Retro Fan. And uh, I'm trying to think who else is left. David Hennessy. Oh, uh, that goes without saying. Yeah. <laughs> but Catherine Lee Scott did an interview with she him. She did. Yes, yes, she did. Yeah, he's been actually a little bit more, a uh, little bit more active lately in terms of particular. He did that Zoom Halloween yeah, special. That. Yeah, I that was cool. That. Yeah. So he's been a little, little bit more outgoing about that stuff lately. So that's that's exciting. Uh, since you have interviewed so many of the Dark Shadows actors, several of the actors in the show, many of the actors played multiple multiple characters in the show, very memorable characters that they portrayed. So I thought it would be fun for us to look at the actors who played the most characters in the show and pick our favorite from each set, from each set. So 
I initially I was going to do people who played uh, four or more characters, but there were a ton of people and even five or more was a lot. I was like, we're not going to have time to, to get to everybody. So I went with six or more characters. And my criteria for this was obviously parallel time characters are separate. Those are distinct characters in a parallel time band, that version of character in parallel time. So that counts as a character. I did not count if you were a ghost of a character, like the, the, the books I noticed do that, like David Ford as Sam Evans, David Ford as the ghost of Sam Evans, still Sam Evans. I'm not going to, I'm not going to go there with that. But what I did count that some people might take issue with is multi-episode possessions of one character by another character. For example, Pansy Faye possessing Charity Trask, two very distinct performances from Nancy Barrett. You can't get much more opposite than Charity Trask and Pansy Faye, very different characters. It is the spirit of Pansy Faye possessing Charity Trask. So I'm counting that as two characters. I'm also counting Longworth and Jaeger as two characters because they're both very distinct portrayals. So I'm going to go through each set. By my criteria here, I have seven sets of characters, seven actors. Okay. Okay. With sets of characters that they played. And I'm going to read the actor's name and the list of characters. And then you give me your favorite and why, and I'll give you my favorite and why. All right. All right. right. You ready? All right. So set number one, Thayer David, Matthew Morgan, Ben Stokes, Professor Timothy Elliott Stokes, Sandor Rakosi, Count Andreas Petofi, Timothy Stokes in parallel time, Mordecai Grimes, Ben Stokes in parallel time, and bonus character, Quentin Collins possessing Count Petofi's body. Oh my. So technically he did kind of play Quentin. He was possessed by Quentin. So, all right. right. So what's out of that list? This is a tough one for me, really tough for me, but I don't know about you. Which one is your favorite Thayer David character and why? Well, my favorite uh, is uh, Ben Stokes from 1795. And the reason for that is because I was so enamored with this show at that time that all these characters, I had no idea that he had been Matthew Morgan because I hadn't been watching the show then. So the first uh, the first characterization I saw by him was Ben Stokes. And I thought he was right on the money. I mean, he, he did such a beautiful job. We used to imitate him, mm-hmm. in fact, because he was just so great. And then I would say that my second favorite was Timothy Stokes because it was so opposite from Ben. Ben was like, you know, he was a, a, an uneducated, I think he had been in jail at one point yeah. and, mm-hmm. and everything. So, uh, and Barnabas had taught him how to read. It was just a wonderful characterization, but Timothy Stokes was an intellectual. Prof- who, the professor of the real regular time band version. Right? Yes, yeah, yes. Okay. Yeah. You could go to him for, for quick answers and he would always always give you the straight scoop and he just handled himself so well. There was a certain amount of sophistication there. So I would say, though, that I do like Ben more. And, and I should also say the very first time I ever saw there, David, was in Journey to the Center of the Earth. Where he, <laughs> he was killed, bad. Killed the duck in the yes, that poor duck. That poor duck. That was off. It's it's hard to, for, you know, it's hard to forgive there, David, after that. You know, he's like, oh, he killed that poor little duck, you know, but <laughs> he, he ate him. But no, but he's he's sensational and every role he plays is right. is gold. Uh, so it was very difficult for me for this one. Um, but I'm going to say. 
it's almost a tie, but I'm going to give the edge to uh, Professor Timothy Elliott Stokes because for the reasons you pointed out, he is brilliant, witty. Uh, he has knowledge of the occult. Uh, he's he's the guy you go to when you have questions about right. the supernatural. Uh, he's he's that. I'm a sucker for that that archetype, that Van Helsing archetype, if you will, the the wise sage scholar who knows about the other side, you know, and he was just absolutely wonderful in that role. Uh, and But he was also, he was witty as well. He had a, a charm to him, a humor to him. Remember when Barnabas wanted him to give him those herbs to, to go back and to send himself back in time. And uh, and he said something like, Mr. Collins, I'm not a, a travel agent for time. <laughs> like, he had that kind of <laughs> sense of humor, you know. And But a very close second for me is Count Pitoffi. Count Pitoffi is just as fun. He is just so much fun to watch as a villain. He is clearly relishing that role immensely. And it's almost a tie. I just, I love watching him as Count Pitoffi with the, with the hand and just oh, yeah. his, he's clearly enjoying being evil playing Count Pitoffi. So he's, he is a close second for me. Uh, all right. So. Okay, so next up, we have set number two, Nancy Barrett. Nancy Barrett played Carolyn Stoddard, Millicent Collins, Charity Trask, Carolyn Loomis in Parallel Time, Letitia Fay, Melanie Collins, Amanda Collins, and also a bonus character here, Pansy Fay possessing Charity Trask's body. You can't get get much more different than, uh, like I said, Charity and Pansy, very distinct characters, uh, even though it is Charity's body that is Pansy's personality. So what's your favorite? Uh, well, again, it's I, I tend to lean more towards 1795 because up until that point, the Carolyn I had seen was the wild heiress uh-huh. who, who picked up with all the boy toys from the town, like Buzz, <laughs> biker boy Buzz. And, sure. and then she was also interested. Well, eventually that, that continued. I mean, it was Jeb Hawks. It was Chris Jennings. It She's was, always uh, drawn to those guys. <laughs> she was. I, I don't know. Was she drawn to uh, Jerry Lacey as as the uh, Tony Tony, Tony Peterson? Yeah. All right. And, and yeah. then Adam. So she, a little. Adam. Bit. Oh my God! How could I forget about Adam? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about it. But up until that point, the only point of reference I have was that she was the heiress who was a little out of control. But she had a heart of gold just the same. And she was also somebody who cared very much for her mother and for her uncle. Mm-hmm. So when she came as Millicent, Millicent was flibbity-gibbet, very nervous, very ill at ease, fell in love with Nathan Forbes, I think, married him and uh, ended badly. And I just liked the, the changeover from Carolyn because I had nothing else to base it on at that point. Following that, I would have to say that Charity Trask was my most interesting because I, I think, I'll tell you, the Pansy Faye thing I, I, I thought was a bit much, uh-huh. especially with the Cockney accent that was like, okay, this is <laughs> just too much for me. And um, especially when she would do this in front of her father, which yeah. was uh, very discomforting because she was almost flirting with him. And that was her father, for God's sake. <laughs> Gregory, <laughs> Gregory Trask we're talking about. Right. So uh, I would say that it was Millicent and then Charity. and Char- this, non, Non-possessed Charity. Non-possessed Charity. Okay. Who was, you know, a good, a good young lady who followed what her mother and father said and believed in God and was a, a bit of a Bible thumper. So I liked her. Okay. Um, I, um, I 
love Nancy Barrett. She is one of the best actors, period, in the show. She's just so good at playing every character that it's also very difficult to pick in this one. Um, but I'm going to go with Carolyn uh, because Carolyn is such you watch the character evolve over the course of the series, going from that spoiled brat party girl. She clearly has a heart of gold underneath all that. She cares deeply for her family and for her mother and is a much more complex character than she would seem on the surface. And Nancy Barrett was really good at playing that strength and also that vulnerability that Carolyn had. And I, I really loved watching her in that role. A very close second. I'm going to go the opposite with of you on this one. I love Pansy, <laughs> a charity possessed by Pansy because um, she was just... She took Kay Fry's portrayal as Pansy Faye and made it her her own. She was just really entertaining. Again, she was clearly having a ball playing that character and being really body and, and outgoing, this showgirl. But she was also tragic. There was a sadness to her as well, especially when she talks about Carl, her poor Carl, you know, that who's been murdered. And uh, there's a, there is a sadness and punctuated by that theme music, the pan pansies, especially when it's played when Colbert's like sad version or mysterious version of the pansy music, I'm going to dance for you plays underneath. There's something that always kind of pulls at my heartstrings a little bit with, with her as the uh, possessed pansy possessed charity. So I always kind of liked that portrayal. It, she was fun to watch. Okay. So next up, we have the uh, the legendary Louis Edmonds, who yes. played several characters. Louis Edmonds played Roger Collins, Joshua Collins, Edward Collins, Roger Collins in Parallel Time, the ghost of Joshua Collins in Parallel Time. So this is Parallel Time Joshua versus our regular time Joshua, Daniel Collins, Amadeus Collins, and Brutus Collins. So out of the Louis Edmonds characters, who is your favorite? Uh, well, I would say... My favorite, again, is 1795, Joshua. And the reason why he's my favorite is there's, there's a scene, uh, I don't know if you remember this or not, where uh, he's down in the basement of the old house and Barnabas gets out of his coffin and Joshua realizes, well, doesn't realize, he realizes that Barnabas is alive, but he doesn't know what it is that's making him alive or anything about vampirism. And the pain that was shown through Lewis Edmonds' performance in that in that scene was uh, just amazing. I mean, and Frid was good too. Frid was very good in this, but it was all Lewis Edmonds, basically. Yeah. It was his game. And I could feel, you know, Joshua had been uh, typical of the period, you know, kind of like the head of the family and used to having things his own way. And the wife is subservient and all this stuff. And his world crumbled. Yeah. He lost both of his children. He lost his wife. He was questioning any everything about life he had to question, all because of Angelique, really. Mm -hmm. She's the reason why all of this, this insidious person has come into their midst. And uh, I think that he was a tormented character because his world had crumbled. And the last part of the world crumbling was that he had to do the right thing by his son. Mm -hmm. And he couldn't, he couldn't bring himself to kill him. So he came up with this idea of putting a cross in the lid of the, of the coffin, I think, and then chaining yeah. the coffin. Yeah. So Barnabas would lie, lie there for 200 years, very hungry, I would assume, yeah. and uh, until until Willie let him out. But it was just such a great, I think it was Emmy worthy. I really do. I mean, I, 
I liked him as Roger because he was like the, oh, Liz, get me a brandy. Oh, I yeah. can't stand it. You know, yeah, he was very kind of like, oh, Liz, you're worried about all these things all the time. But Roger, you know, and, yeah. and, and all that. I liked him as Roger, but I really think that he pushed it wonderfully as Joshua. Yeah, it was a masterpiece. It was definitely his performance as Joshua was was magnificent. And his reactions, like you said, in that scene to Barnabas, to Jonathan Frid, and oh, yes. see him like everything, just his world falling apart, like everything he knew wasn't true. Everything has changed. Um, and I, I like that you mentioned too that I had a friend the other day asked me like, how did Barn, if he's a vampire, how did he not get out of the chained coffin? And I said, because his father told Ben, the servant, to affix a silver cross inside right. the lid of the coffin to uh, immobilize him. And technically, I mean, if you know, use vampire strength to break the chains or could have you know, disappeared and like he did, would do, you know, and appear somewhere else. So um, that's what kept Barnabas in the coffin uh, in addition to the chains. Um, my choice is going to be uh, Roger. He is, I love, again, these are all very difficult because I agree with you. Joshua <laughs> was amazing to watch and he's he's my second favorite, I think, close second. But Roger is such a, he's such a pompous snob, but he's, <laughs> he is, and he, but he's absolutely delightful to watch and charming. And every second he's on screen, he, he's just, wonderful in the hands of another actor i think that i think roger could have been very unlikable but louis edmonds brought such a charm to the character uh that even when he's downright rotten in the early episodes which which he is he's pretty bad in those early episodes he's still uh -huh. a, ge a gem to watch he's just riveting and i think the writers and the producers you know probably saw this because originally Roger was going to be killed off and, and those are, he was going to get fall off Widow's Hill and they decided not to do that. They kept Louis. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. He, in the, in the uh, story, the shadow shadows on the wall, the art Wallace story Bible, he was, uh, Roger was going to be killed. They kept him on the show and he stayed with the show until the very end. Louis Edmonds did. Uh, so my choice is, is Roger with a, with a very close second going to Joshua. So next up set number four uh, is Joan Bennett. She played Elizabeth Collins Stoddard. She also played Naomi Collins. She played uh, Judith Collins. Uh, Elizabeth Collins Stoddard in Parallel Time, the poor relation of the Collins family. Uh, she played Flora Collins, and then she also played Parallel Time Flora Collins. So out of the Joan Bennett oh. set, who is your favorite there? Well, wow, that's interesting. I would have to say that my favorite was, <laughs> I hate to say it, 1795 again, uh -huh. Naomi, Na Naomi Collins. And I'll tell you why. I mean, I, I always thought that Joan Bennett was beautiful anyway, mm -hmm. but when they put her in these period gowns and she was stunning, she was already, I think in her late fifties, maybe even early sixties, I'm not sure, but mm -hmm. she was somewhere around there. She was absolutely stunning and her whole, you know, she's an alcoholic and, and then her world also crumbles and how at the, if I remember rightly, I haven't seen this for a while. It seems so she takes poison and dies in the arms of her son. Yeah. Once she realizes what he's become. Yeah. And I thought, wow, this is again, Emmy worthy, Emmy worthy performance. But I'd say the second one, my favorite is Liz, of course. I mean, she was matriarch of dark shadows. She had the gravitas, you know, she presented that. I mean, this is, I, I it's not like, I like Michelle Pfeiffer, but I, I don't think Michelle Pfeiffer had that, you know, the, she just didn't have it. And and uh, Gene Simmons did, but she was not utilized enough. I mean, she's the kind of actress that would have done well in that part. But 
Joan Bennett was large and in charge. And you knew that even her brother had to kowtow to her. You know, yeah. she was the one who had the purse strings and, and the money was left to her for some reason. She obviously was smarter than her brother and more of a business person. So I really liked her. And also, you know, the part where she was obsessed with death and wanted to kill herself and ended up in a coffin like the premature burial. That was all great. Yeah. She was catatonic, and she, but she was beautiful all the way through. You know, she was mm-hmm. just a, a great performance. And I'd say that she's my second one. Okay. Much like you're, you're gravitating to 1795, I'm, I'm gravitating to the present day. Uh, so I go with Elizabeth Collins Stoddard on this one. Um, I, I agree with everything you said about Naomi, by the way. It is 1795, it's a tragedy. I really like a Shakespearean tragedy. It really is. It really is. And everyone was, was firing on all cylinders during that storyline. But I loved Elizabeth. Uh, Elizabeth was regal, uh, as you said, gravitas. I love the gravitas of Elizabeth and filled with the she just filled the room with her presence whenever she was on screen. You know, she had that Hollywood royalty aura about it. I think even if you didn't know she was a movie star in the 30s and 40s, she still emanated that um, that sense of sadness oh, yeah. and, and mystery that she had, especially in those that first year of the show. There was a melancholy aspect to her as well that was really fascinating to watch. It was palpable, you know, and the way she spoke to our was magnificent, you know, the past. She she just had this way of that, you know, that this way of of speaking that was just really eloquent. Um, and she she was a she was small in stature. She was actually a very small petite person, but she had a big presence on screen. So I'm gonna go with Liz on this one. And second, I think I'm gonna go with Flora Collins from 1840 because it's such a very different character for Joan Bennett to play. All of Joan Bennett's characters in the show had sort of a seriousness about them, but Flora was so flighty. She was the author, you know, this author, and uh, and she just had this kind of very different from anything you you would see Joan Bennett play on Dark Shadows. She was very oh, hello, dear, you know, very (laughs) kind of flighty, I guess she was. Uh, They toned that down, I think, as the storyline went on, but she still maintained a bit of that in the character. So I think it was a fun character to watch and very different from the other Joan Bennett characters. All right, so moving on, uh, set number five, our fifth actor, Grayson Hall. She played Dr. Julia Hoffman, Countess Natalie Dupre, Magda Rakosi. Uh, Hoffman in Parallel Time, The Housekeeper, uh, Julia Collins in Parallel Time, 1841, and Constance Collins in the 1680 Parallel Time flashback. Uh, so out of Grayson Hall's set of characters, who's your favorite? Well, I love Grayson Hall. Uh, I would say that my favorite is Dr. Julia Hoffman. Mm-hmm. Um, she hit all the gongs, was great, you know, fell in love with Barnabas, then turned against him, then tried to undermine his plans. And then she was terrorized and she she just had such a way of acting that was amazing. Mm-hmm. And I, again, we talked about gravitas. I think that I believed her as a doctor. I really mm-hmm. did. Secondly, uh, you know, I, I have a tendency to want to choose Magda because Magda was like, who couldn't do a great job as Magda? I mean, you're wearing this big black wig, you're all in makeup, you're talking, you're rolling your R's, you have all these beads and you're casting 
gypsy spells. I mean, that's just a great part <laughs> for anybody to have. So I would say Countess Natalie Dupre. And that's because, she, again, she had that regal bearing. I mean, when she came in with Josette, when they arrived at the, at the old house and they all swept in in their period gowns and everything, and she's all flouncy and everything, you believed it. You believed it. And you just believed that she was somebody who was used to giving orders and not taking no for an answer. And uh, it was beautifully done. So I would say that. Mm-hmm. I would say those two. Okay. So Julia and Countess. Natalie oh, definitely Dupre. Julia. Definitely Julia. Yeah. I love Dr. Julia Hoffman. She is, she's an essential ingredient in Dark Shadows. But I'm going to say this is even a tie because it's really hard for me to pick, but for sheer unbridled fun every second she is on screen, I have to pick Magda. I have to pick Magda because, you know, it's the her from the accent to the attitude to the outfit. She's just gold. I mean, she's gold. I it's and she was Grayson Hall's favorite character to play on the show, too. She she had a blast playing playing Magda uh, and she was very proud of her grandmother's Magyar heritage. So she she would bring that up. But just the joy she is clear clearly feeling and playing the part really comes through loud and clear. She's having a ball playing Magda. So I'm, I really enjoy watching her on screen. I love Julia too. So it's kind of a tie for me on this one. Cause I can't not, you almost can't not pick Julia because she's such an in, essential ingredient yes, to right. the show, you know? So um, uh, kind of, kind of a toss up on that one. So up next, Christopher Pennock is actor number six. He played a variety of characters too. He was a later addition to the show, of course, but uh, he played several characters during his run on the show. He played Jabez Hawks, the, the elder god <laughs> character, uh, the bratty elder god, uh, Dr. Cyrus Longworth, and John Yeager, the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, uh, Sebastian Shaw, the astrologer, Gabriel Collins, and the parallel time version of Gabriel Collins. So two different Gabriels there. So who is your pick with the Christopher Pennock characters? Well, is Gabriel the one in the wheelchair? The 1840 Gabriel. Yes, he's in the wheelchair. Yep. Mm -hmm. I would have to say I didn't like Jaeger because I I, I think the Dr. Jeff on Hyde storyline is just threadbare after all these years. I've seen so many versions of it. And Sebastian Shaw seemed like he was he was Jebez Hawks, only he was wearing a different outfit. But I would say that my favorite character of his was Jeb. And I'll tell you why. (laughs) When he came on, he was just uh, we had been watching Dark Shadows for a while. That was in 1969. And he had such a swagger to him and such a let's shred the scenery and see where we go. And, and he was unbridled. And I love that. And when I met him and actually I first met him in, in February of 1970 at the studio, my sisters and I went there. We didn't go inside. Oh, wow. Cool. Yeah, It was during February break. And we saw all the people arrive there and he was there and he was smoking a butt. <laughs> and wearing a hippie outfit with a, a, a you know a bandana around his head and shades and all that stuff and uh, I just loved it for his audaciousness uh, that's what I I loved about Jeb um, the other ones uh, I would say the one I just liked the, the most was probably uh, Jaeger because I thought the nose looked fake I didn't think the hair looked good you know 
Um, I am going to go with, okay, this is, this is another tough one, uh, I have to say, uh, because I really, all of his characters were, they were almost all of them were real jerks. Like, uh, you know, Roger calls Jeb an insufferable pig and his characters kind of were in that zone. So I'm going to pick one that is very different for him, uh, Dr. Cyrus Longworth. I love Jekyll and I. That's one of my, probably my, one of my favorite horror stories. I love Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, the, the Stevenson novella. And I love the Frederick March film. And I, I love the Jack Palance version as well. Um, so I was excited when I was a kid and I saw that they were doing Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in Dark Shadows uh, because they had done, you know, the Dracula analog with, with Barnabas, Frankenstein. They did the Wolfman, you know, but here's here's Jekyll and Hyde now. And they had a witch, you know, obviously. So, so I was excited to see that. And I like Longworth because, and it's tough because Gabriel uh, in 1840 is is up there too. And I actually, I liked his portrayal as, he, as skeevy and nasty as he was. He did, you know, Chris Pennock was really good at playing the, these right. wild yeah. characters like that. You know, once they ditched the nose, it was a lot better, I thought. But um, uh, they, they, he was that far. I agree with you. The couple episodes where the, he had that nose, it was like, oh, why, why did they do that? But then, <laughs> then they got rid of that and I was like, oh, that looks better. Uh, but um, I'm going to say as much as much fun as it is to watch Gabriel, who's just so acerbic and sarcastic. Uh, and how wild Pennock was as John Yeager and how disturbing that having, you know, the impulses that he just would act on as the Hyde character. I thought Longworth was interesting to watch because it was a very different performance from Christopher Pennock's other characters. Um, like I said, if you look at all of them, they were all kind of jerks, but Long and Longworth ultimately there's that part of him that is a jerk that becomes, you know, more, consumes him more and more uh, in the Jekyll and Hyde uh, tradition. But there's also that good side to him, that sort of nerdy, soft-spoken friend of of the parallel time, Quentin. Uh, uh, you know, he's a scientist. Yeah, it's a, just a very different character from what I've seen Christopher Pennock play. And right. I kind I kind of felt for Cyrus at the beginning. Uh, of it when he's first, you know, he had noble intentions, but he, then he starts escaping into Jaeger because he's enjoying it. Uh, but initially, early on, I, I kind of felt for for Cyrus, and I thought it was a, a nice character for Christopher Pennock to play because it was a counterpoint to all of the other types of characters that he typically plays on the show. So for that reason, I'll go with him. Okay. Um, all right. And then the last but not least. So using my uh, my criteria here for possession, multi-episode possessions counting as their own characters, I included David Hennessy. David Hennessy, of course, played David Collins, uh, but he also played Daniel Collins. Uh, he played Jameson Collins. He played Daniel Collins in parallel time, the present day parallel time. He played Tad Collins. And then the bonus possessions kind of put him over the uh, six characters or more. Uh, he played uh, Quentin Collins possessing Jameson's <laughs> body, which during that time when Quentin was a zombie, his spirit inhabited Jameson. So for several episodes, he played Quentin. And then later on, Count Patoffi possessing Jameson's body quite memor <laughs> memorably. Yes. <laughs> Mineral water, good for the digestion. <laughs> <laughs> so he was really fun to watch uh, in in those roles. Uh, so I'm counting that as as distinct performances for David Hennessy uh, for those characters. So out of that set, who would you uh, choose there? Well, uh, that's really difficult because I, I was never much taken with child actors on Dark Shadows. Part of it was that I was not 
you know, I was older than them. So I, I saw them as, as kids, mm-hmm. privileged kids who, who were on this great show that I wanted to be on. Okay, how, did, <laughs> how did they make it? I don't know how they made it. But uh, now more objectively as an adult, I can look at the performances and say that my favorite David Hennessy performance is Jameson Collins. And I, I love the name Jameson. I think that's a great name. And uh, it all seemed to fit you know, into the into the Quentin persona, the Quentin story, which is why we were going back to 1897 was to find out about Quentin. My second favorite was Daniel Collins, because he's the one that uh, survived 1795 and goes on to become the patriarch of the Collins family. And I thought he was very good. You know, mostly he was protected and, you know, people were trying to kill him, kidnap him or whatever. And people are shooting around him. And I thought he was very good. I could say David Collins, but I really I think what happened with the David character is that they didn't know quite what to do with him when he started to grow up. They wanted him to be perpetually 10 years old yeah. and he was already 15 or 16, like the one where the parallel time room where they see the play uh, play uh, room and the, they go oh, in the playroom. Yeah, right. They, he was at least. 16 years old. Most 16 year olds would want to play with a little carousel and sit at a table with a party hat on his head. If, if he was 10, that would be different. And that's soon after that, he left the show. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I would say that because of that happening in the David character and that he didn't really make a strong impression on me when he was a child, mm-hmm. I would have to go with Jameson and Daniel. Okay. Excellent choices there. Um, I'm going to go with uh, David. Uh, again, going to my sort of defaulting a lot to the present day characters, <laughs> but um, he's just, he's the most troubled kid in Collinsport. Uh, in those early episodes, especially he was, he was a villain. I mean, he was, he yeah, was, he as was. Ro- yeah, Roger called called him an incipient psychopath, I believe at one point, yeah. which is, yeah, basically what he was. I mean, he tried to, to kill Vicky uh, by locking her away in the room out in the West Wing where nobody knew where she was. He tried to kill his dad. He was troubled, but we do see him grow over the course of the show, especially after what happens with Laura. Um, he does change a bit and he's still a spoiled brat. I think David kind of stays that way, but there's a there's part of David that's connected to the paranormal, that's connected to the supernatural uh, through his whole life that we see, or at least from, as we see in the show, of course, through his mother, Laura, but he's always the one who knows about the ghosts. He he, he sees the ghost, he talks to the ghosts. Um, he hangs out oh, with yeah. Sarah. He figures out, thanks to Sarah, he starts to figure out Barnabas is a vampire. And then later on, you know, he he's always kind of hiding and he knows Adam's hiding in the West Wing, we find out later, oh, David knew all along that Adam was there and goes there and, and hangs out with Adam. He goes and he goes through these hellish experiences with, with Quentin, with the ghost of Quentin and falls into Quentin's orbit. It's just, I like how he's always able to kind of uncover these secrets. Of course, then he's put into danger, which then often is the springboard for a storyline uh, like 1897, leading into 1897 and then uh, 1840 as well uh, with, with the whole Gerard thing. Uh, but I like that he's that kid that knows like, where the secret passageways are and he knows all the weird stuff that's going on in Collinwood, even if nobody believes him and they think he just has an overactive imagination. So I, I really, you know, I, I like David, even though he's a spoiled brat, he's, he is, I enjoy watching him. Um, close second. Um, I'm going to go with, uh, the, just the fun of the Potofi possessed Jameson is just so much like he's, he plays 
Thayer David as Count Potofi. And it's really fun to watch him do that. Like he's he I think he David Hennessy doesn't get enough credit sometimes. He was a, he was a pretty good actor, uh, especially as he got a little older in that time, like 69. He was really did quite well as Jameson, uh, yes. you know, so I, I'm going to go with with that. Um, I do agree with you, though, that they should have let him age. Uh, and when they got to that summer 1970 haunting storyline with Gerard and Daphne and the playroom and all that, and right, it's like right. with, uh, with uh, Hallie Stokes, and it's like, well, Hallie was older. Too. Hallie was a teenager, too. I think she was even older than David Hennessy. And, and they were it's like, yeah, they wouldn't really be. I mean, they might find it interesting, like, oh, here's a playroom, but I don't think they would be all that excited about rocking horses and things, you know? Yeah. Rocking horses. Yeah. That, that got me. Yeah. It's, which is a shame because I think it would have been interesting to see teenage David and his experiences as well. Um, Did did he just disappear from the show? I mean, how did they handle his departure? uh, When they got to 1840, he did play Tad in a few episodes and then he was just gone. They didn't, they never, uh, they just would refer to him off screen. Like, Oh, Tad is here doing this or Tad, will be upset when he finds out about this, but he wasn't, David Hennessy wasn't on the show anymore. And they just kind of phased the Tad and Carrie storyline or Carrie was still there, but they didn't really do anything with Tad anymore. Once they got to 1840, because the ghost of Tad was possessing David in the present. So there, and then he dies and it's like, okay, Tad is a major part of the storyline, Tad Collins, but then David Hennessy left the show and they just kind of let that, let that slide. So Tad was no longer really, he was referenced throughout the rest of 1840, but you never saw him again. Uh, so yeah, he he just he left the show and they never addressed it. And when they huh. and then when they came back to the present, there was only that one scene in the present with Barnabas Julian Stokes. You know, when 1840 is over and they've defeated uh, Judah Zachary, you know, and they come back to the present, there's just that one scene where oh, Roger's giving a speech at the Historical Society where you were late. You know, so. You don't see Dave. Everybody's supposedly at the Historical Society watching Roger's speech. So we don't see David again anyway, because it was such a brief scene in the present. And then in 1841 parallel time, David Hennessy is there's no character for him there. He's gone at that point. So uh, he I mean, he stayed almost to the end. It was like a few months before the end of the show that that he left uh, February, March, April. I, I think it was. Yeah, probably four months before the end of the show that he that he left. Yeah. So, OK, wonderful. Now, Rod, do you have anything coming up in any of the, the magazines, any interviews uh, that we should be on the lookout for? Well, I have. Uh, this has been October has been a pretty good month because uh, they're not all dark shadows because I do other things besides dark shadows. Uh, and I only have a particular few, uh, list of wants now for dark shadows with, as I said, Carolyn, I mean, Nancy Barrett at the top, uh, but people like Donna Wandry and um, Donna McKechnie, I would like to interview them as well. Mm-hmm. Um, my goal is to get everybody. I, I also wanted to talk to Lisa Richards and mm-hmm. also um, Terry Crawford or Terry Ann Crawford. Mm-hmm. I wanted to talk to them, but some, you know, my connections are no better than anybody else's. Uh, mm-hmm. The only thing that I have going for me is that I've been in these magazines and maybe they might give me a, a tumble because of that. So I, I branch out and I do other things. Like right now I have this retro fan issue number 17 out and it had that interview with Lara Parker that you mentioned, but it also has an interview about the Aurora Monsters models that I had as a kid, which is all nostalgia driven. All of it. Nostalgia is really what drives my entire writing career. That's why I got involved in Dr. Shadows. Also, oh, and there's something else I got to tell you, too. Um, The whole point about the nostalgia is it's important to infuse that into the stories. 
because really the people who are going to read these things are people that are already taken with nostalgia. Somebody who's 15 isn't going to want to read about Aurora Monsters. Okay, that means nothing to them. But if you're 45 or even 65 or 75, they might mean something to you. So I also did an interview with the singer B.J. Thomas, who unfortunately passed away not long after I finished the interview. That will be in Retro Fans sometime this coming year. This uh, month, I had uh, an article in Scary Monsters magazine about 1965 and 1966. I call them the best monster kid years ever. <laughs> so I did that. <laughs> Great. Eva. E-V-A. Eva. Yes, Eva. You got to say Eva. Eva from New yes. England. We say Eva. Yeah, Eva, Eva. <laughs> wicked good. It's wicked, wicked good. good. It's wicked good guy. <laughs> it is. So, so then, uh, uh, <laughs> that's funny. So also I have a magazine called uh, uh, Little Shop of Horrors, Mm-hmm. And I did a big article on the actress Joan Fontaine, who was a, a peer of Joan Bennett, and who also is a, has a famous sister, Olivia de Havilland, like Constance Bennett. Mm-hmm. So I did a big article on her. So that's out right now. And then I have some fiction that's coming up in an issue of Scary Monsters magazine. But 2022 is just open for, you know, I would love to interview Nancy. If you're out there, Nancy, please, I would love, and Alexander Moltke, I'd like to as well. Oh, yeah, that'll be, that, she's a, she'd be a tough one to, to get, but. Um, she would, but, you know, I wouldn't ambush these people. I mean, sure. that that's, the whole point is to be positive, positive, positive. Yeah. That's why, like, Marie, for example, I've, I've done four, I, I think I've been nominated four times for Rondo Awards for stuff I did on her. And there was always something new. And I came up with an idea of doing an article where I'm interviewing Jenny of Dark Shadows. Oh, that's great. (laughs) And she would help write the dialogue. Uh But but we haven't, you know, again, it depends on whether the magazine would accept it. If they feel that I've done too much on it, on her already, they won't run it. I think scary, Uh, scary monsters, I bet would be. I hope so. I I have a great relationship with them and I really enjoy writing for them and they publish everything I send them. So Mm. who can complain? (laughs) So I have that coming up. I did want to mention something that that you brought up. Uh, We were talking about fan clubs. Yeah. Uh, There, a lot of people don't know this, but I actually approached Abe Vigoda and asked if I could run his fan club. And I did it the same no way. Kidding. Uh, yeah, I, this was in the fall of 1970. Um, he had just appeared on Dark Shadows and I don't know what what role he had, but he died. Rather Otis, uh, Otis Green, I believe. Was it he, Otis Green? Yeah, uh, he, when he came back and he was killed by, yeah, by the head right. of Judah Zachary. <laughs> yes, okay. And yeah. I found his name again through director assistance called him. I was a little bit more mature and a little bit more confident. He was very, very nice. He said, yes, I would love to have you run my fan club. He sent me an autograph picture and then the show got canceled. Uh, I never kept up with him. I kicked myself so many times because of course he went on to Barney Miller. He was in the Godfather. He was in, he had his own TV show for a while. So uh, uh, that all went kablooey. But I did speak to him and he was a very nice gentleman. Oh, that's great. Yeah, he did play those two the two characters who were, who were both killed off, you know, yeah. but he very memorable, though. Uh, and he was always I was talking about this the other day. I, he always played an old man, even when he, he wasn't did. old. <laughs> he did. You know, that's kind of funny because I thought he was old until yeah. I saw his autograph picture. Yeah. <laughs> but he looked like Boris Karloff. He could have played he Boris did? Karloff in oh. the movie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Um. Closing thoughts on on just the future of Dark Shadows. What would you like to see 
going forward in terms of dark shadows uh, in popular culture? Would you like to see more merchandise or any new media or what, what are your feelings on that? Well, I do have specific feelings on that because I also, I forgot to mention that I covered the Johnny Depp dark shadows for Fangoria magazine. Oh, you did. You interviewed Tim Burton, didn't you? Yes. I interviewed Tim oh, Burton. I yeah. interviewed Richard Zanuck, who was a producer of the show mm-hmm. of, the mo- of the movie and Richard Burton, uh, Richard Burton. <laughs> <laughs> that was my, age okay Tim Richard, Burton. Richard Burton and Dark yeah. Shadows that would have been uh, interesting yeah. I know <laughs> but when we did the Tim Burton thing it was a, a, a conference call thing so I there were all these magazines that were on the line and I could listen to them talking or you know asking questions of Tim Burton and when it got it became evident to me from listening to them that not one of these people had ever seen an original episode of Dark Shadows and none of them were as old as I was Mm-hmm. So it got to the point where I could ask the question. I said, Mr. Burton, um, I'm looking forward to your movie. Uh, can you tell us if you have the iconic scene where the hand jets out of the coffin and grabs Willie Loomis by the neck? And he stopped. He didn't say anything. And he said, well, we have all kinds of iconic scenes. In other words, he didn't have it in there. Uh, and yeah. it's, not, it's not in the movie. No, it and, isn't. No. And then I asked him uh, if they had the opening theme, you know, where you see the rocks against the the water against the rocks. And again, he hemmed and hawed Mm -hmm. and said, well, we utilize a lot of original music cues. Well, that means nothing. They'd used one, as I recall, that was all. And they, and it wasn't the theme. Yeah. And the thing is when I, when that came out, uh, all the dark shadows, people who were involved in that, like David Selby and Lara and Catherine, Uh, We're all gung-ho and let's push forward and let's, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. publicize this thing. But now that time has passed, their their real genuine feelings have come out. And Mm -hmm. basically it's like it was a mistake, you know, Mm -hmm. but it did get people talking. What I would like to see, and I think it would be ideal, I would love to see Dark Shadows come back as a soap opera during Mm -hmm. the day, during the Mm -hmm. afternoon. Mm -hmm. It seems like that's a logical place for it to be. And with the production values that they have now, it would be wonderful and uh but i have yet to hear that as an alternative you know or an option so that's what i think i think at one point that was floated um by dan curtis they had they were they were throwing all kinds of ideas out there and i think that that did come up at one point i want to say it was for fox i think uh, like a, an actual daytime soap opera but it didn't it, oh, didn't, really? go, it didn't go anywhere yeah i believe it was it was pitched uh, but i don't know how far they got in the development on that uh but yeah we at some point i want to talk to mark b perry on here because i know he's doing he wants to do this uh next generation uh series for dark shadows which could be i mean i he seems like a very genuine fan in his interviews that I've read. Uh, I mean, I know Burton and Depp were both saying they were big fans, et cetera. And I'm like, I don't know how you guys would come up with what you came up with being big fans, but I trust Mark B. Perry based on, on what I've been hearing from him. He seems to have a good knowledge and, and passion for the original show. So if it's in the spirit of that, uh, I would, I would be okay with that for sure. Uh, and the 91 series I thought was quite good. Um, you know, there, there were things I didn't like about it, but there were a lot of things I did like about it. I feel at least the tone of the show was more in keeping with, with dark shadows than the Burton film, which was, 
a, a fish out of water comedy. Uh, so, um, yes. yeah. So hopefully we'll see some good stuff. Well, Rod, thank you so much for joining me today uh, on this, on your birthday uh, yes. to, to talk about Dark Shadows with me. And I look forward to reading more of your articles. Folks, be sure to check out Retro Fan number 17. There's a magnificent picture of Lara Parker on the cover as the vampire Angelique. There's a Frankenstein model kit. Uh, uh, Superman's on the cover. With, I think Jaws grabbing Superman's cape. And then we got Mad Mad Monster Party. Good times there with Dracula and, uh, and Phyllis Diller. So uh, be sure to pick up Retro Fan number 17 and take scare. This episode was completely finished. It was ready to go, but I had to go back in and edit in this exciting news bulletin. My mind is blown by this. Yours will be too. Dark Shadows, A Christmas Carol is coming. Uh, Dan Curtis's idea to do uh, a Dark Shadows version of A Christmas Carol using the cast from the show to present uh, A Christmas Carol special on television uh, is coming true, uh, although it will be online, an online reader's theater presentation. This is absolutely awesome. Mark your calendars for December 19th, Sunday, December 19th. The Collinsport Theater of the Airwaves proudly presents Dark Shadows, A Christmas Carol. It is a Reader's Theater production of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, performed by members of the original cast of Dark Shadows. There will be a brief chat with the actors following the performance. Dark Shadows, A Christmas Carol features David Selby, Catherine Lee Scott, Mitchell Ryan, Lara Parker, James Storm, Marie Wallace, Jerry Lacey, Nancy Barrett, David Hennessy, and Alexandra Moltke Isles. Oh my goodness, my mind is blown. This special Christmas in Collinsport presentation uh, will be taking place on Sunday, December 19th at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern. I will post the link directly to the channel for the for the Zoom presentation, which will be webcast via the YouTube channel. I will post the link uh, in the description for this episode. Definitely bookmark that link, mark your calendars. This is definitely something you will not want to miss. This is a sure to be legendary event. And for as long as they lived, the dark shadows never truly dissipated, for there will always be terror at Collinwood. Terror at Collinwood is a Penny Dreadful production. <laughs>